0: So, why don't I pray, and then we'll jump into <clears throat> to today's passage. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, thanks for, um, even what it says in here, uh, you fulfill every single one of your good promises. Father, thank you for the promises you fulfilled for us. And Lord, as we look at some of them today, um, Lord, would we be encouraged and challenged and strengthened by them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, back in 2017, I, uh, I ran a 10K. Uh, I know you can't tell it by looking at me, but for a few months, I was a runner. And um, I was convinced to do this by a couple friends of mine who were like, hey, we're not really, well, one of them really, actually, both of them were runners now that I think of it. They coaxed me into it because they're like, we don't really run very much. We're going to do this 10K. Do you want to do it with us? And so I said, okay, I'll do it. And so for about three months, I trained for this. And I would go out every day after work, and I would just kind of build up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And it just became part of my daily routine. I would come home, I would put on my running gear, and I would put on my headphones, and I would just go and run. And I got all the way to the point before the race of even doing, like, I think 7.5K, which is the most I'd ever run. And, uh, and then I went on the day, and I ran the 10K. And I, just, I had one goal, and my one goal was... I want to finish it in under an hour, uh, and so actually I did it in. Ready for this? Uh, Fifty nine minutes and forty seven seconds. Uh, so I did it, and uh, and the thing is, um, it was all great, and the whole run was great, and it, it just got a little awkward when a guy in a chicken suit ran past me at about five k, and I was like, okay, this is embarrassing. Um, and I actually, I really enjoyed it. And I, I enjoyed those afternoons going out for runs. Uh, and it was great. And you'd think that because I actually enjoyed it so much when the race was over, I'd just keep running. But I think you can tell by looking at me, that's not what happened. Uh, I, actually, I think, I was trying to think, I think I ran one time since that race in 2017. Uh, just one time I went out and ran since then. Um, and if you think about it, it, this is actually how we approach a lot of things in life. We've got a big goal. We've got a challenge ahead. And so what do we do? We buckle down. Uh, we, we focus. And then when we, reach, when we reach the goal, when we complete the challenge, what do we do? We drop it. We're done. We did it. Um, and uh, I was thinking, if this is true of most parts of our lives, why would our spiritual lives be any different? Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this drawing. Here it comes. Remember this one? Uh, we tend to think the Christian life or Christianity sort of goes like this. It's just you become a Christian and then it's like a straight line to, to becoming like Christ. Like that's what Christian growth looks like. It's just a straight line. We tend to think of it like that. Um, but actually, it's more, it's more like this. Forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards. And that's what we picked up uh, as we looked through the book of Joshua is that actually the whole Christian life looks like that. There's times where it's like it's just really clear. We're moving towards Christ. We're becoming more like him. Our lives are are being impacted by the truths of God's word. And then we take a step back. And then we repent and then we come forward and then back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, And what we've been saying is the way that we become strong, the way that we grow as a Christian, is uh, we just continue to plant little seeds along the way. Seeds of faithfulness, seeds of obedience, seeds of prayer, and so on. So that one day those seeds will bear fruit. And so those little seeds keep us trending towards Christ throughout our life. And that's what we've been seeing in Joshua. Um, Well, we pick up the story now in Joshua 23. And when we do, Joshua says he's an old man. Uh, probably well over 100 years old. And at this point, what's he concerned about? What's this old man concerned about? He's worried that after he dies, after the battle is now over, that the people will turn away from God, from the God who fought for them, from the God who fulfilled all his promises for them, that they would turn away. Or you could put it this way when the battle's over, we tend to wander. We're prone to wander. Um, I suppose for some, the drawing of their Christian growth then might look something more like this. And this is what Joshua is worried about. That Israel will, he'll die, and Israel will wander. And so how do we keep from wandering? How do we keep from, from living like that? Well, Joshua, he shows us three things, three sort of, Uh, if you will, seeds that we need to plant down deep if we're going to make it for the long haul. Uh, And so I keep from wandering when I know these three things. Number one, my faith is in God alone. Number two, my strength is in my obedience. And number three, my sin is serious. And if you know those three things and you act on them, if you plant those seeds down deep, it will keep you from that wandering, meandering life. Um, so let's take a look at them. First, my faith is in God alone. There, there's a famous verse in the New Testament in uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 that goes like this. And you might actually want to turn there in your Bibles so that you can follow along. Hebrews chapter 11, verse, verse 1. I'm going to put that verse on the screen, but you're going to want the rest of it open. So Hebrews 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is Is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see? Well, here's the question, and keep this in your mind. How can you be confident in what you hope for and assured about what you don't see? Every single springtime, when baseball season starts, I have this hope within me that my Chicago Cubs will not only make the playoffs but will win the World Series. <laughs> I have a hope, but I'm never confident. And I certainly have no assurance that it will happen. In fact, if you have, uh, if you have no assurance it will happen uh, until, you don't know until the last out. And for about 108 years, you could say the Cubs, any Cubs fan could be confident and assured that they wouldn't win the World Series. Like that's the one thing that you know is gonna happen. So, but that's the question. How can faith be confident and assured if you don't yet know the outcome? How can you be confident and assured if you don't know what the outcome is? Well, Hebrews 11, and I hope you've turned there by now, it goes on to say this. And as I read this, I want you to listen for a couple of words. Listen for anything related to promises, to understanding, and to reasoning. Okay, listen for those three words, promises, understanding, and reasoning. Let's just go to verse 2. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Let's skip all the way down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Uh, down to verse 30, here's a couple of lines related to the book of Joshua. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who are disobedient. And here's a little bit more. Keep going. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? I didn't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, uh, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. So how did the ancients like Abraham and Joshua and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel, how did they live by faith? Well, the text says it was based on understanding in verse three. Promises in verse 17 and verse 33 and reasoning in verse 19. Now, here's what this is saying. The essence of. Of faith, especially the essence of Christian faith, is not a blind leap, but is based on promises, understanding and reason. That's the essence of the Christian faith. And what this means is, if you're a Christian, at some point, you reasoned, the claims of Christianity are true. At some point in your life, you in your mind, you reasoned this gospel that I've heard is true. At some point and for some reason, you must have decided that the weight of the evidence of Christianity is for it. But the challenge of faith, in other words, the the reason we're prone to wander typically comes a little while after we've become a Christian. So you reasoned it, you understood it, and you you grasped it. But then the challenge of faith comes a little bit later. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, now faith... In the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, You can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Now, what's he getting at there? Well, I guess what he's saying is unless you train up the habit or the virtue of faith in your life, unless your faith in God alone is in God alone, then your life will look like this one, the the wandering arrows. Unless you train the habit of faith, this is what your life will look like. Now, this is what Joshua is concerned with as we get to chapter 23. And he knows that now that the battle is over, they will be prone to wander. And he gives them one key weapon in their fight against wandering. Uh, in other words, he shows them how to train the habit of faith, uh, or to put the words we've been using through this series, how to plant the seeds of faith. So take a look again back in Joshua 23, verse 3. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land on the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the West. And so here's what it is, this this is the key. It's to remember. Remember what God has already done. Remember the ways he's already fulfilled his promises. Remember how he's already come through. Those are the evidences, those are the facts of faith. And so you can see that faith, it's not a blind leap. It's based on reasoning, it's based on understanding, it's based on facts, it's based on history. And so therefore I can reason that God will come through for me in the future because of all the ways he's already come through for me in the past. And based on what Israel remembers here, they can then move forward. They can move forward with complete confidence and assurance. Look at verse 5. So remember these things. Then verse 5, the Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. So God will do what he promised and we can be confident and assured because of what he's already done. He's already brought down the walls of Jericho. He's already, uh, he's already given us Ai and Hazor. He's already given us the inheritance that's promised. And if that's true, then how much more will it be true in the future? And so the weapon that we have against wandering, the first weapon that we have against wandering, is to be a historian. Because your moods will change. There will be days when you don't feel like believing in Christ. There will be days when you doubt. And so how do you maintain your faith? How do you have a strong faith that can withstand or even stop you from wandering? It's to plant seeds of faith by remembering. To hold in your mind for some time each day some history of what God has already done. You can do that by reading scripture. You can remind yourself. You can can thank God for some of the gifts and the things he's already done for you. Uh, Back to C.S. Lewis. He says, neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. As a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply just drift away. And so what's Joshua saying to his people? And by extension, what's the text saying to us? It's that our faith is in God alone. It's a confident, assured faith because of the things God's already done. And if that's not where we're putting our faith, then we will wander. We're prone to wander. And so how do I keep from wandering? Well, firstly, it's to remember that all Christians should be historians. And when we are, we'll find out, and we will find that our faith is in God alone. Secondly, the way to keep from wandering is when I know that my strength is in my obedience. Uh, When I was in high school, I played on the basketball team. Sorry, two sports things in one sermon, I apologize. But I played on the basketball team and my senior year, the last year of high school, we, we actually, we, we were a pretty good team. We, we won our conference, we did really well. Uh, we, were, we were almost unstoppable because our coach had come up with this uh, series of plays that was, we'd do seven different plays on offense uh, in a row and the other teams could never figure out what we were doing. So like we would get scouting reports of the other team's offensive plays and what they would do and then we would practice during the week so that we could defend it. But other teams could never figure out what we were doing because here's what my coach came up with. He goes, we're gonna have seven plays and we're gonna gonna do them in order every time we come down on offense, but I'm only gonna call out the play once. And then you have to remember every single time down which play you're on so that you can run that play and no one will be able to figure out what we're doing. And it worked. And so he'd call out, uh, the name of my school was Caneland, and so that was the name of the seven plays in a row. So he'd call out Caneland, and then we would run these seven plays over and over and over again. And we were unstoppable. Our strength was in our ability to obediently follow all seven plays in a row and to not deviate to the right or to the left. Uh, That was our strength. And so we were virtually unstoppable until we got to the playoffs and played teams that were much bigger and stronger and faster than us. And then it didn't matter what we did. They were just bigger and faster and stronger. Well, in the same way, the second way that Joshua gives to keep from wandering is to obey. Israel's strength would be in her obedience to God's word. So look again at verse 6. He says, be very strong. And here it is again, that, that resounding charge that we've heard in almost every chapter of Joshua. Be strong. But then look at where the strength is. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. In other words, their strength is in their obedience. Be strong. And how are you strong? By obeying. And what emerges in verses 6 to 10 are two principles and one motivation for obedience. The two principles for how to obey and, and one motivation for Uh, for why to obey and the first principle is this and we saw it already in verse six obedience is not turning aside to the right or to the left Uh, that's the very definition of wandering is it you know you've got your path that you're on and if you turn to the left or to the right what are you now doing now you're wandering Um, i've talked to lots of christians over the years who have said things to me like this i'm not the sort of christian who obeys everything Or, I'm a Christian, but I kind of have my own version of Christianity. There's some things I do, some things I don't. In other words, they've created their own version of Christianity by picking and choosing from the Bible what to obey and what not to obey. In the end, it always gets them into trouble. And oftentimes, because they're moving to the right or to the left, they end up wandering away from the Lord entirely. And so that's not... Biblical Christianity. Look again at what our text says. It says, be very strong. And then what does it say? It says, be careful. Be careful to obey. In other words, be intentional to obey. This actually has to do with making conscious choices to obey. So I carefully, intentionally choose to obey God's word. And then it says, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. And so I consciously, intentionally choose to obey not just some of God's word, not the parts I like or or even the ones that I agree with, not just the parts that feel good to me, but all of it. I consciously, intentionally choose to obey the ones that are hard, the ones that make me stand out in the culture, the ones that don't feel good at first. And then it says, without turning aside to the right or to the left, so without wandering." And so obedience, first, it's not picking and choosing, it's not turning right or left, but it's being careful to obey all of it. And here's what happens with obedience. Every time you make a conscious, intentional choice to obey, you are slowly turning the central part of you, the part that makes choices more and more into a godly person. Every time you make a conscious, intentional choice to obey, the central part of who you are becomes more and more godly. But the flip side's true as well. That every time you wander, every time you turn to the right or to the left, you turn yourself, the central part of who you are, into more and more of a wanderer. That's the first principle of obedience. Here's the second. Obedience is always a no and a yes. It's always a no and a yes. In other words, it's always a no to Certain activities, thoughts, words that are disobedient to God's word. But it's never just a no. There's always a yes. In verse 7, he says, not to assemble with the nations who remain among them. And this is not xenophobia. Because look at the rest of verse 7. It actually has to do with idol worship. And what this is saying is don't associate with their gods. Don't become a worshiper of their gods. You have your God. And your God is the one who brought you up out of Egypt, who defeated all your enemies... And has given you the land. So now, don't now abandon him and worship other gods. And so there's, that's the no of their obedience. And verse 8 then is the yes. Take a look at verse 8. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. And so instead of bowing down to foreign gods, the yes of obedience is for them to hold fast to the Lord their God. And that word, hold fast, or that phrase, hold fast, it could be translated as cling or cleave. It's actually the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 2 where God says uh, that the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And so the yes of obedience is to be so connected to the Lord their God that you're like a husband and wife. And think about it. What is marriage but a no and a yes? Yes. The groom says no to any other woman on earth and makes a vow of yes to the one, to his bride. And the bride says no to any other man on earth and makes a vow of yes to her groom. In other words, to cling so closely to one another that no other person can get in between them. Marriage is a no and a yes. And so therefore what God is asking of Israel is for them to cling so closely to him that no other God can get between them. And so obedience always involves a no and a yes. And this principle, by the way, it's written all over the New Testament as well. Uh, Romans 13, for example, uh, verse 12, it says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Right, it's a no and a yes. Romans thirteen fourteen. rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh no to the flesh a yes to christ Colossians three but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger rage malice slander filthy language from your lips do not lie to one another since you have taken off your old self with its practices that's the no and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator and that's the yes and this is the only way of planting seeds of obedience in your life. There must be both a no and a yes. So let me just get really practical for a second. Uh, here, here's an example. Obedience is not just not gossiping. Obedience is, isn't just keeping your mouth shut about other people's business. It's a, it is a no to that, but it's a yes to using your mouth instead to encourage and to build up and to edify. It's a no and a yes. Obedience isn't just keeping your eyes from looking at things on the internet that you shouldn't. It's a yes to using your eyes to look at the scriptures and to notice the beauty of creation as you're out for a walk. Obedience isn't just not stealing from others. It's a yes to being generous as you give to others. You see how that works? It's always a no and a yes. So there you have it, two principles of obedience. Don't turn to the right or to the left, and there's always a no and a yes. Yes. But notice now the motivation for obedience, verse 11. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Now there's a motivation for obedience that's not motivated by love. Uh, For example, if you have a job, uh, likely you have a boss. um, And that boss has work for you to do. Uh, Why do you do your work? Why do you do it? It's so you'll be accepted. So your work will be accepted at the end of the job or you know, every two weeks you'll get a paycheck. In other words, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, right? That's one form of obedience. But there is a motivation for obedience that's motivated by love. Uh, for example, when Emmy and I were engaged, there's an important conversation that comes up in the engagement phase of a relationship about your finances. Um, and at that time, this many years ago, my finances were a mess. I had a student loan, I had a car loan, I was being paid very little, and I was still paying for graduate school on top of my loan, uh, which meant I also had some credit card debt. And I was ashamed of all of it. Ashamed of all of it. Uh, especially to share that with another person. But not only that, for that person to have the right to ask me to make a change. In other words, to give my obedience to someone. But I had already been accepted by her. I already have her love. She already said yes to marrying me. And here's how obedience motivated by love works. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. You see the difference? It's I obey, therefore my accepted versus I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Now, which is it for Israel in Joshua 23? Look at verse 11 again. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Now, if you just read that verse on its own, it could go either way. It could go either way. Ah, but look what comes before it, verse 9. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as He promised. Do you know what that means? He's already accepted them. They're already his people. They're already a loved people, a people who have received a promise. They are accepted, loved, therefore they obey. And what that means is their obedience is motivated by love. And so don't think of obedience to God as some sort of drudgery. Your obedience itself is an act of love. You're not turning to the right or to the left is an act of love. Your no and your yes is an act of love. And so this is where your strength is found. Your strength is found in your obedience. Uh, That's point two. Now, point three, and the third thing we need to know if we're to keep from wandering is this. My sin is serious. That's both a statement and a confession. My sin is serious. And you might think in the grand scheme of things, you might think, oh, yeah, your sin, it's it's inconsequential. Right? the thoughts that no one else knows about. The little actions that go unnoticed by others, all these little ones, especially the little ones, they don't harm anyone. They barely harm me. Oh yes, they do. Each one is like a little seed planted that will bear fruit. Each one turns you ever so slowly into more and more of a wanderer. Let me put it this way. There isn't a sin that isn't serious. Because every sin is a sin that Jesus Christ had to die for. So there isn't a sin that isn't serious. Before we get to that, though, let's look at our text. Verse 14, Joshua says this. I love this. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That's a great way of saying I'm about to die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know, with all your heart and soul, that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But since that's true, then verse 15 and 16, it's also true that if you turn away from the Lord, the Lord will bring on you all the wrath he has threatened until you have perished from the good land he's given you. That's what it says. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, after all my long years, this is Joshua speaking, I'm about to go the way of the earth. After all my long years, after all I've observed, I was born a slave in Egypt. I was of the generation who experienced the Passover and was brought out of slavery by God. I was one of the spies Moses sent into the land. One of the two who said we shouldn't be afraid. We should go. We should obey God. We can take the land. But I watched my entire generation be disobedient and therefore die Wandering in the wilderness. I was there when the lot fell to Achan and his sin was exposed. I myself was disobedient when I didn't pray for the Lord's guidance when the Gibeonites came seeking a covenant. And if there's one thing I know for sure, it's this, Joshua says. All sin is serious. All sin deserves the punishment that comes from God for our disobedience. And so what does he do? He warns them, he leaves them with a warning. He says, don't turn away from the Lord your God. Don't take sin so flippantly. Don't look at your sin like, I've been good for so long, I'm kind of owed one. It's okay. Don't look at it like, well, this is just tiny. All sin must be dealt with, for God is a just God, and he does not let the guilty go unpunished. And what will be the punishment for Israel if they turn away from God? Verse 16. The Lord's anger will burn against you. And you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. And what that's saying is that all sin is serious and all sin has serious consequences. God. But we we can remember this as we've remembered almost every week that our Joshua here in the book of Joshua, he's only a pointer. He's only a signpost to the greater Joshua, to Jesus Christ. And look back at verse 13, because this is amazing. What does this sound like to you? Verse 13. Then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, listen to this. What does this sound like to you? Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good land, which the Lord your God has given you. What does that sound like to you? I can't read that and not think of Jesus Christ. A trap was set for him by Judas. He was beaten and whipped by the Roman soldiers and a crown of thorns pressed into his head. And then he was crucified and he perished from the good land. All sin is serious and all sin must be punished. And the punishment for any sin is to perish. An eternal perishing away from God in hell. And yet, God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy and faithfulness, offers us his grace through Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ, who never turned to the right or the left. Jesus Christ, who always obeyed with a proper no and a proper yes. Jesus Christ, who was loved by the Father and who loved him back. He was the one who was whipped. He was the one who had the thorns pressed into his head. The nails pierced into his hands, into his feet. He did the perishing. He was cut off so that you and I who deserve to be cut off could be saved. And so here's the bad news that all sin is serious and must be dealt seriously. But here's the good news. Your sin has been seriously dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you're not yet a Christian, you only need to come to him and ask him for his grace, and it will be yours. Get this, the first no of the Christian life, the first no of the Christian life is to say no to saving yourself, no to your rejection of God, and to say yes to his grace through Jesus Christ. That's the first no and yes. And when you do that, all that is yours becomes his. All of your wrongdoing, all of your sin is put on him but all of his righteousness, all of his goodness becomes yours. That's what it looks like to become a Christian, to say the first no and yes. Now for the Christian, the person who's already done that, we still have to take our sins seriously. It's not like we we deal with it once, but that we always have to take our sins seriously because if we don't, we will wander and we won't experience the good land, the good promises that God has for us in our lives. We started out talking about remembering and that the way that we keep from wandering is to remember the things God has already done. In other words, the ways that God's already shown us his love and acceptance. And here's here's what occurs to me. Oftentimes the reason that we sin is because we forget. Sin is almost always the fruit of forgetting. Forgetting the love of God. Forgetting the goodness of God. Forgetting the kindness of God, forgetting the grace of God, forgetting the sacrifice of God on the cross. So this is what it takes to keep from wondering, to know these three things so deeply. Number one, that my hope is in God alone, that I remember what he has done for me so that my hope is confident and assured in what he will do for me. Number two, that my strength is in my obedience. And number three, that my sin is serious but has been seriously dealt with by Christ on the cross. We're all prone to wander, but the way we keep from wandering is to plant seeds of hope in God by remembering what he's already done. Seeds of obedience day by day by day, taking our sins so seriously that we repent and receive the grace of God. And what you find over time as you do that is that those seeds bear fruit. Uh, I just want to, I read this from Eugene Peterson a few weeks ago. I want to read it again as we close. Uh, He wrote this in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He said, Everything in the gospel is livable. And my pastoral task was to get it lived. It was not enough that I announced the gospel, explain it, or whip up enthusiasm for it. I wanted it lived lived in detail, lived on the streets and on the job, lived in bedrooms and kitchens, lived through cancer and divorce, lived with children and in marriage. Along the way, I found that this also meant living it myself, which turned out to be a far more formidable assignment. I realized this is going to take some time. I settled in for the long haul. That's when the phrase from Nietzsche, a long obedience in the same direction, embedded itself in my imagination. And, you know, I first read that quote, and I thought, when he says this, I realized this was going to take some time. I settled in for the long haul. At first, I thought he meant that for the people in his church. And now I think he, maybe he means it more for himself, that he actually he made a conscious choice to carefully obey, to settle in for the long haul. He knew it was going to take some time, and so he settled in for the long haul, and he just carefully obeyed, trying to never turn to the right or to the left to say the no's, to say the yeses, And so here's the thing. We are prone to wander. But if we settle in for the long haul, take that long walk of obedience in the same direction, we will learn to wander less and less over time. Let's pray. Father, we, we admit to you how prone to wander we really are. How easy it is for us to turn to the right, to the left, to not say the no's, to not say the yeses, to forget. Father, forgive us. Help us to take our sin, our wandering seriously. And Lord, we say thank you. We say thank you that you have taken it seriously in Christ. You've dealt with it. Thank you for your goodness and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.